1: Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything. Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Carl Panzram is generally considered to be the worst of the worst. A despicable, disgusting monster who stole, raped, and murdered his way across the United States, according to his own confessions. This is an episode about Carl Panzram, the criminal, the killer. It's about the torture he inflicted on others, but also the torture inflicted on him. Did the penal system turn him into what he became? Was he mentally ill? Does the lack of evidence in most of what he confessed to make him guilty to anything? Or is he solely to blame for the trail of terror and death that he claimed responsibility for? These are some of the questions discussed in our episode today. I'm very glad to have John Borowski here with me. He is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Some of the titles of his films are Albert Fish, In Sin He Found Salvation, H.H. Holmes, America's First Serial Killer, and Serial Killer Culture. I've asked him to talk about his 2013 film, Carl Panzram, The Spirit of Hatred and Vengeance, and he's been gracious enough to agree. Thanks for doing this, John.
1: Thanks for having me on. I'm really uh, excited to talk about one of our own most
2: notorious. (laughs) Absolutely. So as a Minnesotan, I first heard about this guy years ago as he unfortunately spent his formative years here. Before we get into that, I want to ask you about how you first heard about Panzram and what motivated you to tell his story on screen.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure exactly when I first heard about Pan's you know, when I was creating um, my films on Albert Fish and H.H. Holmes, you know, of course I had, you know, really begun to research into all these serial killers, because I always had a background of enjoying horror films, and... It kind of made sense to create films on our kind of modern, you know, in a sense, monsters, you know, even though I don't like to call them that. But, you know, they are, you know, things that our modern nightmares are made of. So. You know, I I did some research, and I was looking into all these different serial killers. And I was always interested in other serial killers, like Ed Gein. You know, I'm I'm mainly interested in pre like 1950s, 1940s serial killers because the lack of forensics, the tried and true detective work that goes into it. So I'm always interested in all those early cases because we've kind of been inundated with a lot of documentaries and films on you know the the more contemporary serial killers, such as. John Wayne Gacy and the Night Stalker and, um, Richard, you know, you know, these, these, uh, later serial killers. So, and, and there was a lot done on Ed Gein. So I figured, you know, I, I was looking into Carl Panzeram and, you know, what really fascinated me most about Panzram's story is that, um, you know, he, he was this hate filled person and he did, experienced, you know, so many traumatic things to him and, and possibly did those things to others. But, you know, he wanted to leave us with a lesson. You know, he was very introspective and he knew what he was and he knew that he couldn't change. And, um, you know, it was a kindly jail guard that kind of brought that, you know, Henry Lester brought those uh, feelings out of Ram, and, you know, I, I thought that was interesting. You know, I can't really think of many other, you know, psychopaths or serial killers that tried to leave us with a lesson on on how to teach our children not to become monsters, you know, or the type of people that, you know, uh he became. So that was what's what most fascinated me the most. Of course he wrote this extensive autobiography. Detailing his entire life, but not only his entire life, but an assessment of the criminal justice system and the people that work behind the scenes. And you know, I thought that was you know extremely fascinating because you, here you have this inside perspective of a criminal that basically lived his entire life in prisons and jails. He never once had a physical address. Prisons and jails were his homes. So who better than someone like Panzram to give us an assessment of? from the inside of what, you know, was really going on and pretty much still applies today.
2: Absolutely. So let's talk about his early childhood. Where was he born? And how did he grow up?
1: Yeah, he was born in um, Minnesota, I believe it was, uh, I think it was Grand Rapids, uh minnesota you know it's been a while since i you know i worked on all my research for that but uh was definitely you know uh he was born on a farm uh his parents uh, when he was a young child he was the youngest of course of you know i believe it was about four or five children uh father left the family so you know here's you know his mother trying to not only take care of these children but trying to take care of this farm And of course, Panzram, you know, he's the youngest child, so he's not getting the attention that he wants. And then... You know, if he did get attention, it was negative attention. You know, his brothers would beat up on him. So he was, you know, constantly crying for attention as a child, you know. And, and you know, I, I, I'm i not sure if there was any parental abuse, you know. There's really no proof of that. But, you know, he did feel like an outsider ever since he was a child because, again, you know, his, his brothers would, would constantly call him dumb and stupid and, and beat him up and make fun of him because he was the youngest child. So, you know, growing up, you know, growing up on in in that atmosphere and those conditions, he was desperate for attention. So, you know, there's a story which I've never actually found, you know, the the research verification is. But one of the early stories is that when he was six or eight years old, he was arrested for intoxication at that young of an age. Again, that's. That is in the book Killer, a Journal of Murder, but I've never um, found the research files to validate that. But the, the truth comes in when he was 12 years old. So when he was 12, he broke into a neighbor's house and stole some things, you know, like a kid would do, maybe an apple, and he stole a piece of cake. But, of course, he stole a, a gun. He stole a revolver at 12 years old. And, you know, what he says, you know, he wanted to go out and, you know, be a cowboy and shoot Indians. But, and of course, you know, if we look at America's kind of legacy of, you know, hatred and discrimination that kind of created that within Panzeram, you know, this wanting to shoot Indians and kill Indians. And that's what I tried to. You know, uh, show a little in my film. You know that Panzram was kind of the symbol for mankind's hatred and destruction, and you know the the uh, discrimination and hatred in America's past really didn't help that much, really, and it kind of reflected that in Panzram as well. So, you know, after he had did that, he he was caught after stealing the gun from the neighbor's house and. Then he was sent to reform school in Red Wing, uh, Minnesota, the, uh, the reform school there. And, and that was where every step of life for Carl Panzeram, especially at an early age, was just, uh, basically a life of suffering and torture. And it, it just continued. And, and when he went to Red Wing, uh, the reform school there, it got even worse where he had told stories about, um, abuse there, whether it was physical or sexual, you know, it was definitely physical and possibly sexual as well. He didn't go into great detail about the sexual abuse, but it was physical. He said they had a outhouse, a shed there that they would take the kids that acted up in and take them to this outhouse and they would beat them. And they called it the paint shop because he said, uh, they called it that because they would come out black and blue from all the beatings. And, you know, even what's very interesting, too, at that very young age, Red Wing created the course at that time period for Panzram for the rest of his life. Two incidents, three incidents really his growing up on the farm with his brothers, the Red Wing incidences, and then another one later. But when he was in Red Wing, he had this conflict where, you know, there would be religious people, you know, practicing their religion. But at the same time, they would be abusing the children there. But again, that was kind of standard at that time period. Beatings and, and abuses were standard in those institutions at that time. And when, when I did do my research, I went to visit the state archives in Minnesota, and, and I actually went to Red Wing and had a tour of Red Wing. The extras are uh, the, some of that tour and the interview with the superintendent of Red, the current superintendent, is, are on the DVD of Carl Panzram. And, um, one of what they would do is they would write a punishment slips for children in Red Wing and Panzram had dozens of these punishment slips, everything from, you know, talking to chewing gum, to spitting, you know, basically a kid's acts. But one of these punishment slips really was his entire life. He attempted to escape at one point, he was brought back. And then on this punishment slip, it said attempted escape. And then what was the punishment has a spanking. So, you know, he had done this throughout his entire life in jails and prisons. He had attempted to escape or he did escape. He was caught, he was brought back, he was beaten. Over and over again. So that, that, being in Red Wing kind of formed what would happen to him throughout the rest of his life. But also another thing, you know, he, he wanted revenge and, you know, revenge was a big motive that would also be something indicative of his entire life. So what did he do? He burned down that building that he would be abused in and in Red Wing. And, you know, and, and when I visited there now, it, it's very different now. It, it was, it was very interesting because, uh, I interviewed the superintendent, and he said, well, we're going to have two of our residents give you a tour of Red Wing. And, you know, they don't call them prisoners. They call them residents. And, you know, at first I'm thinking, Wait, well, you're going to, you know, you're just going to allow me to walk around the grounds with two of these, you know, residents. But there are different tiers of their residents, you know, obviously. And, and these two were teenagers that were going to be released soon and, and, you know, weren't some of the most violent offenders there. And it was refreshing because they, the first classroom they took me to, you open the door and it's an acting classroom. So I hear all these children and teenagers learning how to act. And, and you know, so it's, it's like it's very different now. In the past, beating would just be a way of beating them in a submission. Now at least they're trying to teach them. But, of course, you know, throughout the tour at Red Wing, you know, it did get a little worse as we went along until we finally arrived to the, you know, the, the confinement area where you had the violent offenders, you know, which were locked up. So, you know, it, 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 it was refreshing, but it's still a little scary. And of course, you know, again, a lot of these things haven't changed, but what has changed is, you know, they aren't doing the beatings there at Red Wing. They're, you know, obviously trying to instill values and teach these children. So that was refreshing.
2: Yeah, for sure. I was actually going to ask you if you'd had a chance to tour the place, and I'm glad you answered that. Let me ask you about this, because a lot of people argue that this particular incident might have had something to do with his mental state. When he was a young boy, he had something called a mastoid operation, and it didn't go very well. Would you mind explaining this a little more?
1: yeah you know at that time period of course you know lack of funds and uh you know the early you know it 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 was still you know many things were still in its infancy at that time period you know the the you know mid to late 1800s you know even in even doctors and you know in the town they they had the yeah, i think it was a uh, you know one of their doctors that came and actually operated on him and Panzram said They operated on him on the kitchen table with no anesthetic, you know, going in, into, you know, this area around his ear, uh, you know, and he said his head had swollen up like a balloon. It was a really bad, you know, operation and traumatic for him. You know, the thing is, we still do not know what causes psychopaths and serial killers to do what they do, you know, in the end. We, there is no one thing, you know, each case is different. Uh, and, and each case has to be assessed, you know, on its own. But I believe through my studies, you know, a lot of these issues, whether it's it could be abuse or a trauma or something that clicks in their mind between their formative years, you know, up to about 12 years old, anywhere between when they're a child to 12 years old. And, you know, Panzeram did lie about some things, you know, and, and a lot of people think, well, he's just a liar and a bragger. Well, there were things that I could prove that were factual. When he was admitted into Red Wing, on on the on the book, the admittance book, it said that he had a scar behind his left ear. So he did have that operation. That was true. How that affected him, you know, we don't really know. You know, some people say head injuries, operations like that could cause, you know, uh, environment factors. Uh, DNA, you know, and then some people say he was just a bad seed, but, you know, I don't know if I prescribe to that theory, you know, I I, I subscribe to that theory, you know, I don't know if if a child could come out of the womb and, and, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, they're just bad or evil. I'm not sure if I uh, believe in that, you know, I, I think, you know, through incidences and and environment that, you know, they could be molded, you know, kind of to go along a bad path. And I think that's kind of what happened to Panzeram, especially he was this child that, you know, received this negative attention through beatings, and that's all he knew. So he gave back what he was given. But the mastoid operation was something that was definitely traumatic for him. Um, Again, I don't know if that really affected, you know, I think the incidents at home with his family the, uh, abuse at Red Wing, you know, and the, the, uh, the hypocrisy of, of these religious leaders. He hated religion after that period, never wanted to deal with it. And then, you know, eventually, you know, when he was released from Red Wing, he went back home and not long after that, he ran away and he never returned, you know, between like 12 and 14 years old and he started riding the rails. So, you know, at that time period, it was normal, you know, for males to ride uh, the rail cars. So they would sleep in rail cars, That's that was their mode of transportation. And he said he was raped by three homeless men on one of these train cars. And that's another incident that, you know, again, here's this young man that after all these, you know, incidences of abuse and, and, you know, and, and trauma that happened to him, he took it about, well, I'm just going to believe my theory is might is right. You know, he believed that the strongest person would be the winner, and wh- whoever could overpower another person would be the literally the top man, and that's what he became. You know, and and he would ride the rails, and and he would force other men, uh, you know, to uh, you know and sexually abuse them, and and that began his life right there, his life of basically sodomy, crime, and theft, and that's how he lived his life.
2: I think you quote him in your film as having used the motto rob rape, and kill in that order right
1: yeah those that's what he lived by rob rape and and murder those those were his you know his three you know basically ideals that he lived by you know and and that is that is true, you know, but as we go on, you know we, we see you know pansram you know uh traveling a lot being being in prisons and jails and 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 he said he was in Africa, so there was all these there were many experiences that you know he had went through during relatively short time period, um, some of which I think you know are, were very important to his life. But in the end, when you look at the totality of it, that's why in my documentary film, I focused a lot of time on his childhood, which was very important, and then a lot of time on his psychology and his incarcerations and his final days. And his relationship with the jail guard, Henry Lesser. But, you know, there's really, there's no proof whatsoever that he ever killed anyone other than, you know, the eventual killing of the laundry foreman. I know we're fast forwarding, but I didn't know if we wanted to go chronological or, you know, where you wanted to go with this. But, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah, we can go however you want to go. I do have a tendency to move chronologically in my interviews, but, but it doesn't matter to me. So, as soon as he's able to, Panzram enlists in the army. But his stint in the army doesn't last long, does it?
1: No, no. And, and you know, that's the thing, too. You know, I mean, if you step back and, and look... I mean, if you look at the army, what the army is, you know, you know, on the, on the surface, we think, well, you know, it's defending our country. It's, you know, becoming a productive citizen. It's, you know... But, you know... This didn't fit in with Pan's Ramp's personality. You know, he didn't like to him and to many people, you know, the army was just basically another form of prison because you're under, you know, you're basically stripped of who you are. You know, you're under other people's rules and regulations that didn't fit in with him. So, of course, you know, he's you know, he's going to go up against the, you know, these army officials immediately and he didn't want to be in it. So what did he do? He stole items. He stole coats you know, which he was probably going to sell. He stole a lot of items. And then eventually he would, and then he, you know, abandoned the army and took off and eventually he was caught and court-martialed. And, you know, his first prison stint was in uh, Fort Leavenworth, which was, ironically, he would wind up later in his life, he would wind up down the street at the actual Leavenworth Penitentiary. So his first and last incarcerations were both at Leavenworth.
2: We will be right back.
1: The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilley, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the
0: audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon.
1: Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say.
0: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media.
1: When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Oh, well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever
2: you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So let's talk a little about his incarcerations things were far from pleasant for him. He was tortured extensively. His experiences were horrific and helped form his views on the world and humankind. Can you explain how how he was tortured and what some of those experiences were and how he developed physically in prison as well?
1: Yeah, many people believe that Carl Panzram is the, uh, example of a, you know, this kind of man-made Frankenstein type monster who, you know, was created by the prison system. You know, again, you know, that's debatable as well, but many people do that, you know, but, you know, his per, we have to look at his personality as well. You know, he didn't walk into a jail or prison and say, okay, you know, I, I'll abide by your rules. I'll sit here quietly. He was a troublemaker. You know, he would go in these prisons and start fights and go up against the guards, and you know they'd give him a, uh, a one look and he, would you know, attack them or you know he he was a he was a problematic prisoner. I, I I will say that you know he wasn't an angel. Okay, we know that, but I don't know if he I don't I don't believe anybody if they're under the rule of you know the government or a prison that they should be treated the way he was. And he writes extensively in his autobiographies. How he was treated. Everything from, they had a, one torture which was probably one of the worst. It was called a hummingbird torture. And it was called a hummingbird because it would make your skin flutter. And what it was is, it was these two wires attached to a battery. And they would have sponges on the ends of these, you know, wires and they would put the offender in a bathtub a metal bathtub with some water and they would take these sponges and and pretty much go up and down their entire body and electrocute them with these sponges and he said the agony was intense it felt like your whole body was being pierced with you know red hot needles you know he would be tied up he would be hosed down he would be uh, chained, chained up and, and, uh, hosed. He would be beaten, uh, abused, mocked. I mean, you name it. Uh, you know, and, and they had different names for all these tortures. The jackets where they would put him in like, kind of like a straight jacket and leave them for hours. And, and these were some of his early experiences. So again, the, these did form him, but I think they also kind of made him stronger. You know, he wasn't a really big guy. He was most likely built. But you know he wasn't like tall, he wasn't like six, four. He was about five, nine, five, ten. But you know he's kind of a brutish guy probably. But again, you know he most likely gained from being in these prisons, you know, what do they do? They work work on weights, you know, to build their body up when they have their free time. So that's what most likely he was doing. But you know, really, the turning point for him, came in Oregon penitentiary, which, you know, it's so interesting that, you know, you look at one way at Panzram's story, but another way to look at it is that he actually did bring about prison reform for the better, I believe, because initially when he was in Oregon, he started, you know, at the Salem penitentiary, he started so much trouble there that he first, he caused a a prisoner to escape. And then the, the warden you know, was shot and killed in that attempt to find this other prisoner. So then they brought in that warden's brother who was even worse than the warden before him and Panzram being the troublemaker, they wound up hosing down Panzram. And, you know, that's very painful too, you know, shooting, you know, a person with a high powered hose and he was black and blue and, you know, uh, really bruised from that. And the word got out to the governor. And the governor fired the them them warden, brought in another warden. Now here's a reform warden that says, you know what? We're not going to have any beatings or abuses. And then he brings Panzram in and says, you know, I hear you're the most problematic prisoner here. You know what I'm going to do every morning? I'm going to open the gates and just let you walk out and you can go wherever you want. Leave the prison, go out, have fun. But you know what? I'm going to trust you to be back here by five o'clock dinner time because no one, you know, had ever trusted pans Ram. So, you know, Warden and Murphy said they beat them. They've done all these other things, but they never tried trust. So let me try it. And it worked for a while, but one night pans Ram met a nurse, and he stayed out and he drunk drank and, you know, with this nurse and had a great time. And, you know, he returned and uh, they found him and arrested him and they brought him back to the prison. And, of course, the new warden, you know, was, uh, you know, fired for that when word got out. So, you know, in a sense, Pansram did bring about a little reform, you know, as far as punishments go. But, you know, it's still the same cycle. You know, Tom Merton was someone else that you know, had uh, went up against this in a, in a prison, and they made a film called Brubaker with Robert Redford about it as well. So, you know, the the whole Panzram story is very interesting as far as not only Panzram's perspective, but prison, you know, life and, and reformation.
2: Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about some of these prison escapes or these attempted prison escapes. He escapes from Oregon State Prison. And actually, at one point, he, he breaks into a prison to break a friend out. And in another instance, he injures himself badly in an attempted escape, doesn't he?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, I thought, you know, again, he, he's almost superhuman in a sense when you look at what Panzeram accomplished. I know of no other criminal that broke into a prison to, you know, he broke into a prison to get a safe cracker out. One of his friends, he did get into the prison. He successfully broke into the prison, but he was caught. So, you know, he didn't succeed a hundred percent, but you know, man, you have to kind of give him credit for actually breaking into a prison. Um, you know, and, and, you know, he would, he would, you know, break in and out of these prisons, you know, and one time when he was free, when he broke out of a prison, he robbed uh, pre- former president Taft's home. And so he had all these, you know, bonds that he used to purchase a, a yacht. So, you know, he was on this yacht, he was sailing and then eventually he was caught for that offense. And he was, when he was caught for that, it's interesting his mugshot, when he was sent to Sing Sing at first. He was wearing a tuxedo. He was living high on the lamb, you know, from all this money that he stole with his yacht. So, you know, I thought that was pretty, you know, fascinating that, you know, this criminal lived an interesting full life. I mean, of course, a frightening life where he's always looking over his shoulder, too. But it's fascinating. So eventually he wound up in Sing Sing prison in New York. Well, they couldn't deal with him. They were like, okay, this is a problematic prisoner. So they shipped him upstate New York to Dannemora, New York which is Clinton Prison up there. And man, I'm telling you, I filmed there, and um, that's probably the most most oppressive place that I've ever seen in my life. They have a 30-foot wall above ground and a 30-foot wall below ground, so the prisoners can't tunnel below the ground. But this, when you get there and when you see this wall that goes all the way around this prison, it looks like it goes on for miles. I mean, it looks like you're in a gulag in Siberia. And I was there in winter. It was just frightening, you know. And, of course, even though I had permission to film the outside, I was stopped every 30 minutes or a couple hours. And, you know, I had to tell them my story. And they said, okay, we cleared you. You're okay. You know, and I understand they have to do their job. And it was interesting to see that. How, you know, when they were in the guard tower, they were they would lower the key down to the next guard to get into the door below. That's how, you know, a very interesting, you know, way that they would go about uh, working in these prisons. But one of the times I was stopped when I was filming outside of Dannemora, uh there was a guard that said, we still talk about what Panzram did all these years later. And that was in the uh, early 1920s, I believe. He said, we still talk about it because no one has ever done what he he accomplished or tried to accomplish. And he told me the actual story, which was never known before because you read, there's one book out there on Panzram. You read this book, but there are a lot of inaccuracies or, or details that are missing that are unknown. So what I had found out from this jail guard, he said that Panzram had collected all this kind of fencing material from inside the prison. I don't know if it was fences for gardens or what they were for, but they must've, the fences must've uh, been like some type of a ladder shape. So eventually Pansram created a ladder out of this fencing material and he went out to the yard one day and threw it up the 30 foot wall. And then he would, his, he was going to attempt to climb over this 30 foot wall. So just as he gets to the top, he didn't make it over. The, the ladder broke. Panzram fell down that 30 foot wall, broke part of his lower back, part of his ankles ruptured himself. And Panzram said they threw him in a jail cell with no medical attention whatsoever. And that's where he said his hate for the entire race and himself really reached this kind of peak where he had, uh, he imagined starting world wars and in, in, in his writings, he had, he he spells it out how he would start the world wars between like U S and the UK and other countries. He wanted to poison the entire town of Danamora by putting poison in their uh, drinking water. And, you know, he really spiraled, you know, downwards. Where, and he even had, um, he imagined, he had fascinations of, uh, you know, kind of going into a, tunnel where a train would come through and having this gas uh, mixture that would explode when the train hit it and it would knock everybody out and he would go in and shoot everybody and take all their valuables. So he was just at that point, he was this ultimate rage, hate filled serial killer where he just wanted to kill himself, destroy the world and every human being. But he said he would leave the earth for the, for nature and the animals because he believed that, you know, those were the only things that were good in the world, nature and, and animals. So, he did suffer a lot and, you know, experts believe that he was thrown into that jail cell without any medical attention to, to prove a point to other prisoners. Man, you're you're going to try and escape from this prison? Well, you know what? You're going to suffer. This is proof. Look at what happened. We didn't help him out. So eventually he, he developed a permanent limp from that, you know, crippling fall from that wall and, and the lack of medical attention there. Eventually they did give him medical attention, but not at first. So... He did suffer. He said he had to crawl around the ground of uh, this prison cell like a snake with a broken back. And it was really bad. And eventually he was released from there. And, and, you know, he promised that, you know, he would go to another country and never return and never do these things again. But of course he was lying.
2: And I think that this is earlier than the incident that you just talked about. But he, he travels overseas over the course of five years or so. Where does he go and what are some of his experiences?
1: Yeah, that was before the, you know, there's a whole period where, you know, he had, you know, had that yacht and he traveled and, you know, he had many things, you know, he, he had worked at, you know, in a circus and, you know, he had, he probably as a strong man. He had done many things. It, supposedly in one of his travels, he had went to Africa and he worked on these huge oil rigs and, he was upset at one point because he wasn't paid and he burned down one of these oil rigs. And there was this oil tycoon later that was actually in the same prison as his, one of his jail guards. And, uh, his name was, uh, Sinclair and, he said, yeah, he remembered when one of his oil rigs was burned down. So, you know, again, it's hard piecing together the facts from fiction with Ram, but there is a lot of facts, and I believe he would have done that. And in his travels, he said when he was in Africa, he had hired a boat with Africans, and, you know, he had a canoe, and he was in the canoe, and he decided to shoot these Africans and feed them to the crocodiles, and he had talked about all these various murders and, and you know, people that he had killed, and... And, uh, all the things that he had done, um, one of the most interesting things is that he said when he was in Africa, there was a reporter from the Saturday evening post and, and did a article on these oil rigs. I found that actual Saturday evening post and Panzram said his picture was in there, there is a picture of a man, you know, with all these Africans carrying equipment, but you can't see the man from the front, you know, you see him from behind. So is this another one of Panzram's lies? Because Panzram was pretty worldly. You know, he was very intelligent. He would read periodicals and newspapers. You know, he wanted to study philosophy. You know, he had a sixth grade education, but he was an avid learner and a reader. So he could have seen this article in the Saturday Evening Post, and he could have told someone else, well, that's my picture, but knowing that, we couldn't prove that it was him or it could have been him. You know, we don't, that is something we don't know, but it's pretty interesting. And I, I did find that article in the magazine and it could be him, but it's a, it's a shot from behind. So we don't, we can't verify that. So, you know, those are some of his travels. Supposedly, you know, in Philadelphia, he did murder a little boy because, you know, they wanted to extradite him back to Philadelphia for that. But that never came to fruition. So that it's very difficult, again, to say that, you know, he murdered that little boy. He may have, but Carl Panzram being a serial killer is, is very uh, tough, if not impossible, to uh, verify.
2: So Carl Panzram is a self-confessed serial killer he admitted to many, many murders. I'd like to know what your opinion is on this. How many murders did he commit? How many murders have been attributed to him? And how many of these murders include evidence that points to him as the murderer? Can, can you talk about this?
1: Yeah, he says, um, you know, and, and I, I'd like to talk about it in the context of when he meets uh, the jail guard, Henry Lesser, because that's kind of, You know, he did, he did start talking about some of these murders before that, but it was really his relationship with, when he opened up to Henry Lesser and, and when he arrived at the Washington DC jail, it's really when it began because, you know, uh, after the whole Dan Amora incident with his, you know, attempting to escape, supposedly, you know, he, uh, he murdered another person or two. So he says... And then he was caught in Washington, DC for stealing a dentist's radio. And that, you know, when he was caught in DC and he went to trial there, that's when they gave him, you know, I think it was 28 years or whoever or many years it was, they gave him for stealing this dentist's radio. But they also, at that time, they started looking back and saying, wow, look at all these incarcerations and how problematic he is. Let's give him a hefty sentence even though it's a relatively small offense because we want to keep this guy behind bars. So, you know, he started saying these things when he arrived in DC because he, when he arrived in the DC jail, which was, uh, it wasn't a a federal jail at that time period. um, But when he arrived at the Washington DC jail, he was abused there again by the superintendent, you know, ordered his uh, to be strung up, it was a torture that goes back many ages called a strapado. When a person is handcuffed from behind, their hands are handcuffed behind them and they're tied, a uh, rope is tied to their hands and they're lifted. The, the rope is thrown above a beam and they're, they're lifted by force from their, you know, all the pressure being put on their, um, their shoulders, their shoulder joints being lifted off the ground. He was left there for a while, you know, and, and, you know, even he said that, you know, the, the pain and, and the handcuffs, you know, made his hands bleed and, you know, all these things, just, just a more awful tortures that were very unnecessary. And there was a young jail guard there at that time. And his name was Henry Lesser. And he was a young 25 year old Jewish jail guard and he befriended Panzram. He kind of felt sorry for him, but knew he was a, a, could be a violent offender. He could tell. But, you know, he felt sorry for him. He gave him a dollar so that Panzram could buy some stuff. You know, he developed a friendship with him and, you know, saw he was intelligent. They would talk about Les Miserables and, you know, all these other, um, interesting things in Panzram's entire life. And so Henry Lester said, well, you know, why don't you write your life story so we could teach others what you know kind of formed you why you became what you became you know as a warning so panzram did start writing for henry lesser in secret because at that time period at that jail you know prisoners weren't allowed to write so henry lesser would sneak him paper and pencil uh he would put on the jail bar on the jail uh bar c- cell bars and panzram would take it and write and leave them on the cell bars and and lesser would take them and and you know hold on to these things but see At that time, Panzeram knew he was going to be transferred to Leavenworth Penitentiary and Leavenworth Penitentiary was the first federal penitentiary. So this was a bad place filled with bad men. I mean, Machine Gun Kelly, kind of the worst of the worst, all the bad criminals and gangsters were at Leavenworth. So, you know, and on one hand, you know, you could look at it as Panzram saying, okay, his con, some of his confessions of these murders may have been him building himself up to be a braggart knowing that word is going to get into the criminals at Leavenworth so they could be afraid of this guy. So Panzram writes that he killed 21 human beings in his writings to Lesser. And he describes the Africans, you know, these children that, you know, he killed, that he strangled with a belt and Eat their brains in until the brains were coming out of the ears. you know, very graphic descriptions of these murders, you know, a lot of children's and, and rapes and murders of some children, 21 in total. So he says, but none of those could be verified. Zero. You know, uh, other than possibly that one in Philadelphia where Panzerama had told them where to find a body and they did find it. But again, that never went to trial. So there could have been that one. Does the one make him a serial killer? We don't know. You know, I I can't really definitively say. That's why in my film, I only focused on the murders basically about five minutes, you know, because it's more about his psychology and and what I could prove. You know, we don't have proof that he committed the murders. We don't have proof that he did not commit the murders. So, uh, you know, I feel that he knew he was going to Leavenworth and he knew he had to build himself up as this ultimate, you know, bad guy.
2: Could you expand a little on what Pansram admitted he did on this yacht that he bought. It's pretty gruesome.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So when Pansram owns this yacht that he purchased with the bonds that he stole from uh, ex-president Taft, um, he's pretty much living uh, the high life, but it's, it's pretty frightening and gruesome uh, what he claims that he did. So he owns this yacht, And he said he would, he would take the yacht and he would go to New York City and, and he would, uh, you know, uh, basically, you know, hire sailors to do work for him. So he would hire these sailors to come on his boat and and help him out and work for him. Well, in the end, he didn't pay the sailors. So instead of paying them, he would rape them and murder them and throw their bodies overboard. Again, there's no proof of this, but I, I think it's it's pretty awful. But but that's Panzram's, you know, M.O. as far as, you know, using people and revenge and, uh, you know, how many he did, you know, it, it, it did this to is, is unknown. But, again, you know, he, he always felt that, you know, people could get the one up on him, so he wanted to kind of get it went up on someone else before they could do it to him that that was you know his the way he lived his life you know and uh you know in addition to the africans that he said he killed and you know the children you know he said he did kill some of these sailors in new york off the coast of new york
2: back after a few brief messages
0: hi i'm matt albers host of the pirate history podcast the men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
2: And we have returned for the final time. Robert Stroud, the infamous Birdman of Alcatraz, wrote a book about the prison system, and he included a chapter on Panzram. What was Robert Stroud's impression of Panzram?
1: Yeah, Robert Stroud had, you know, some interesting things to say about Panzram. You know, um, Robert Stroud was given two cells, and he was right across from Panzram. but Panzram really didn't communicate with Robert Stroud. You know, he, he just didn't have an interest. You know, he, he knew, they knew of each other, but you know, Panzram didn't specifically mention Robert Stroud in his writings. He mentioned at one point there is another unique or interesting criminal here, but that's it. He doesn't mention Stroud by name. You know, he said, there's another criminal that wants to talk to me, but I'm not interested. So he doesn't really go into it that much. You know, and Robert Stroud was a, was a problem to the prison system, almost as much as Karl Panzram was. He caused a, a ton of trouble for the prison system, and eventually they let him have all these birds and they, this aviary. They gave him two cells. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to, you know, know once again, even with Robert Stroud, how much is truth about Karl Panzram. You know, but he does devote an entire chapter to Karl Panzram. You know, which which is very interesting, and I think we, you know, come back to this later when it has to do with Panzram's execution, because that's where most of Robert Stroud's writing kind of relates to, you know, Carl Panzram and being there. Um, but after, you know, the D.C. jail, Panzram's transferred to Leavenworth. So when, you know, he arrives at Leavenworth, the first thing he says is, you know, I'm going to kill, you know, anybody that bothers me. That's the first thing he says. And when he, when he arrives at Leavenworth, he is still writing to the jail guard Henry Lesser. So at Leavenworth, the federal penitentiary, they, prisoners were allowed to write and receive letters. And these letters, all of Panzeram's letters and autobiographical papers, the originals, and I have to stress this, if anyone wants to see these and touch them, go to San Diego State University where they are in their special collection. San Diego State University owns the largest collection of Panzer materials in the entire world, which were met uh, much of the materials were donated by Joel Goodman who was uh, a former uh, alumnus of San Diego State and met the jail guard, Henry Lesser. Henry Lesser gave a lot of his materials to Joel Goodman, Joel Goodman, after loaning those materials for me to use in the film, we we basically donated all our research materials to San Diego State University. So that's a great resource. I just wanted to throw it out there for people. So when Panzeram is writing Henry Lesser, he's basically, you know, Panzeram is done at this point. Panzeram wants to, if Panzeram can't destroy the world and kill every human being on earth, which was his goal, <laughs> He wanted to kill himself. He wanted out of this world. And he did try and commit suicide several times at the prison and either was at Leavenworth and he either was caught or, you know, he wasn't able to go through with it. So when he's writing Henry Lesser, he's working in the laundry, you know, at Leavenworth with this foreman named Warnke. Now, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, talk about this foreman named Warnke. You know, some people believe that, well, you know, It was just Panzram, he was a bad guy. But through my researches, I did find out that Key, you know, wasn't very nice to Panzram. You know, he would taunt him, call him names, talk about, you know, how he, you know, liked little boys and how he would rape them. And, you know, he wasn't really nice to Panzram. And then Panzram, you know, had a little side thing going. He would bleach these handkerchiefs and iron these handkerchiefs for other, other criminals. Well, he got caught. You know, and, and he was written up for that. So he didn't like that. And, and he believed that this laundry foreman was out for him because he was taunting him and, but what's so interesting as he's working in this laundry, he's planning to kill the laundry foreman because like he said, the first person that messes with me, I'm going to kill them. But he's writing to Henry Lesser. But when you read his writings, Panzeram's saying, you know what? I want out of this world and I have a plan and it's any day now I'm going to put it into motion. He knew, so Panzram's plan was kill the laundry foreman, get the death penalty. Even though the death penalty in Kansas was abolished at that time, they brought it back for Panzram. but Panzram, you know, knew this was going to happen. And he said, you know what, I went out of this world. So Panzram brought about his own death penalty. He made the government kill him, which he got his wish in the end which was, is fascinating to me. So he does kill this laundry foreman. He hit a uh, iron bar. He beats this laundry foreman to a bloody pulp. And eventually he goes to trial and he gets the death penalty. He was happy. So then after he beats this laundry foreman, he's thrown into solitary confinement where he says, I was in shock. No one laid a hand on me. Nobody beat me. Nobody harmed me. They gave me great meals. They actually treated me like a human being. And then Panzeram says one of the most important things in history. He says, you know, if somebody, if people would have treated me this way from when I was a child, maybe I wouldn't have grown up to be a murderer, a rapist and a thief. So, it, you know, and again, he he blamed a lot of people and he blamed a lot of things. But when you look, you know, when you really look at his writings, you could, you could kind of see these things forming and it makes sense, you know, that You know, here's Henry Lesser, a jail guard, who was kind to him and brought out the best in him and and wrote this hundreds of pages of an autobiography. But everyone else's methods were just beat him in a submission.
2: Yeah. Can I ask you, how did Lesser meet Panzeram? What were the circumstances of their meeting?
1: So when Panzeram arrived at the D.C. jail, you know, there was talk about him and, and through the guards, Henry Lesser was a guard on the night shift. So Panzeram arrived during the day one day and they started talking about, you know, this problematic prisoner and, you know, so Henry Lesser had, you know, gone by his cell a couple times and talked to him, but, you know, he was very weary of him because he knew he was full of rage and and hate. But then once Panzeram was tortured there and he was thrown in his cell Henry Lester kind of felt sorry for him because he had started a little, somewhat of a little relationship with him, talking to him and, and, you know, getting to know him. And that's when he gave Panzram this dollar bill. If it's true or not, we don't know, but Panzram, you know, may have cried and, you know, he he was in utter shock that someone who represents his ultimate nemesis, a jail guard, the people who beat him his entire life, This one's being nice to him. And Panzram thought it was a new form of torture It's psychological torture. Now are they, he gave me this dollar and what, what's up with this? Is this, you know, why would they be nice to me? Are they going to now beat me, you know, tonight or tomorrow? Very strange, you know, but Henry Lester really had no uh, other intention of, of just to be kind to this prisoner that he felt sorry for that he was abused there and hurt so much. And, uh, that's how their relationship began. You know, there's, I found, uh, in some of the research material that Lesser had an entire writing, which I'm, I'm going to publish a book eventually about Panzeram's time at DC and Leavenworth. But in this writing that called Recollections of Karl Panzeram by Henry Lesser, he says they talked, they talked about, you know, novels and books and Les Miserables, which is pretty interesting, you know, you know, taking in a condition, you know, Panzram's, you know, background and everything that he went through. So, you know, um, that's how they began the relationship. And, and, you know, eventually Panzram wrote hundreds of pages of autobiography for Henry Lester, and he still wrote to Lester when he was at Leavenworth.
2: How did he write an autobiography with a sixth grade education? I mean, how does that work?
1: Yeah, you know it's fascinating when when you read it. Like I said, I, I, Panzerm was very well read. When you read his writing, it, you know it's very it's very clear and concise. It's not like a child wrote it, but it's it's somebody who's writing based on uh, a lifetime of experience in the prison system. Basically, you know, he would jump around at some place. At some points, he would talk about the tortures that he went through. At some points, he would talk about. You know, his assessment of, you know, what the, the, the prison, you know, system was all about. And, you know, he would talk about, you know, who is really making money off of crime. And it's the, the whole system and not the criminals because they're eventually put in prison. It's the judges, the attorneys, the police officers. They're the actual people that are profiting off of crime. So, you know, I thought, you know, that was. Pretty interesting, And plus, he talked about his entire life of all these things that he did. You know, one of his early murders, supposedly that, you know, they had uh, robbed this guy and tied him up and left him for dead. And whether he died or not, they never knew, you know, all these, you know, fascinating experiences. Again, I think, you know, maybe... 10 to 25% lies, but, you know, majority of truth, because through my researches, I did find the files from all the institutions that he was at and, and, you know, all those things were true. What really gets very hazy. And that's why I want to release a book about his time at Leavenworth is the whole time at Leavenworth, because right now the Bible that we have about Panzram is a book called Killer Journal of Murder. Now, the problem with that book is The whole half of the, the last half of the book is based on Robert Shroud's writings on Pan's Ram because the authors of that book, one of the authors was uh, also the author of the Birdman of Alcatraz. They did not have access to the federal files like I did. And in the federal files, you actually get to read all about the other jail guards that witnessed what occurred in the prison at the time before and after Panzeram killed the laundry foreman. But see, Stroud was in a cell. Stroud wasn't in the laundry. Stroud wasn't, you know, Stroud was in solitary confinement. So he wasn't in the laundry when these things were happening. He wasn't at the execution when Panzeram was executed. So, you know, many times these criminals will write about incidences and other criminals just to get attention to themselves. So in that sense, he was kind of like Pan's Ram, you know, was he lying about things? Was he gloating? You know, there were some things I did find that were untrue in Robert Trout's writings. For instance, one time he says that Pan's Ram was sent to the hole and the hole is kind of like a, you know, it's just basically a dark room that they put these prisoners in to punish them, you know, with light deprivation, sound deprivation. But you know, at, at Leavenworth, which was the first federal penitentiary, they had punishment slips for every time they did these—the you know, send a prisoner to the hole or punish them. There was never one for Panzeram being sent to the hole through all my researches, and these were numbered punishment slips. So, if if Stroud is lying about one thing, Stroud is probably lying about other things. So, you know, there—you know, Stroud does talk about you know Panzeram a little bit. But again, there's nothing like seeing the actual guards talking about what happened and and the guards saying that, yeah, you know, there was friction between the laundry foreman, Warnke, and Panzeram. You know, he did, you know, that he did taunt him. You know, and then there was another book called The House of Whispering Hate, which was written by an an ex-inmate at Leavenworth. And he even verified that Warnke would taunt Panzeram. So, you know, when you get two or three different people, saying that Warnke wasn't a nice guy to Panzeram is probably the truth. If Stroud just said it, that would be one thing. But again, you know, through my researches, you know, it, I, I, I see that probably being the case. You know, did he deserve to die? No, obviously, but, you know, through Panzeram's eyes, you know, that's what he had to do. So, you know, Panzeram's here in solitary, you know, waiting for his execution. And, you know, his his execution is a whole Big another form of debate that I didn't, you know, if if I would have had to tra- tackle that issue, his execution and his last words in my documentary it would have taken another half hour because I don't believe that Pantram's famous last words are actually his famous last words. I don't believe he ever said that.
2: Okay. I definitely want to hear about this. Can you go over the day of his execution? How How did things play out on his last day?
1: Well, on his last day, you know, he gets up, he's excited, he wants to get it over with. You know, he's just, if it was up to him, he would have it over in two seconds. He just wants to go. He's done. And, uh, so then, you know, the warden comes, arrives at his cell, you know, to lead him, you know, the procession to, to the, the noose where he's going to be hanged. And the warden arrives with a priest. Well, we know how Panzram feels about religion. So the minute he sees this priest, he starts going off and saying, you know what, if you don't get this priest out of here, I don't want to priest at my execution. I don't want to see them. If you don't get them out of here, you're going to be sending people to the hospital, you know, I mean, he really, he went on a rampage. So eventually the warrior was like, okay, you know, let's, let's just show the priest out. We don't want to deal with this. Let's, you know, not deal with that. And so then, okay, Panzram was suited at that point. And, you know, so there are a couple guards that, you know, are going to lead, you know, Panzram up to, you know, uh, the gallows. Well, Panzram was leading them. That's how quickly he wanted to die. He just wanted to get it over with. So he was almost running on his way up to the scaffold. Well, as he's approaching the scaffold, he always said, He wanted to spit in the captain of the guard's eye. So right, you know, as he, now Stroud does write somewhat about this because, you know, there's another expert uh, that I interviewed in my documentary, Kenneth Lemaster. He was a guard at Leavenworth and, you know, he verified that where Stroud's cell was, Stroud, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm getting this confused, not Stroud, The other inmate that wrote the House of Whispering Hate, Stroud couldn't see the execution from where he was in solitary, but the, the inmate that wrote the House of Whispering Hate said that all of the inmates were crowded by this one window and they saw Panzram come out from the solitary on his way to the gallows. And there was a window, you know, which is in my documentary, that would have been the window where they would have seen him come out of that door. And they said they saw him spit towards the captain of the guard. Now, I don't think, I I think it landed on his jacket. It didn't get him in the face, but you know, that was one thing that Panzram wanted to do and he kind of accomplished it. So, but from that point, from Panzram exiting solitary to his actual execution, it's, it's, it's hard. There are so many accounts of what happened. It's hard to say what is truth. Maybe a little of everything was truth the newspaper reporters that were there on, in all of the accounts that I read, all of the newspapers said that Panzeran didn't say a word that he just ran up, you know, got to the gallows. They put the noose on him and it was over in a matter of seconds. That's what the newspaper reporters say. Now, you know, the, the warden, warden white, who was there, you know, I have his book and this is going to be his, his recollection is going to be published in my book. And he says that when Panzram got up there, he looked at everybody and said, yeah, I heard that, you know, when I die, I'm going to take a big crap in my pants. And that's what I'd like to do to the world, basically, is crap all over it. You know, so that's one thing he could have said. Um, Robert Stroud writes that Panzram said, hurry up, you who's your field cocksucker. And that's it. But when you read the book, the only book that's out that says Carl Panzler's last words were hurry up you Hoosier bastard. I could have hung a dozen men while you're fooling around that last part, hang a dozen men while you're fooling around. I have never ever seen that verified in all of my researches, all the newspaper reports, Stroud's own writing and the warden's writing. None of them say that. So I believe the book made that up or, or, it, or again, he Pantram may have done all these things. Maybe he did say that thing about crapping that maybe he did say that last part. We may never really know if he'd said anything, or if he said all these things, you know, he may have said all these things at different points, but Stroud You know, Stroud would be hearsay because even if a guard was present at the execution and he told Stroud, Stroud was not there. So can we really take Stroud's saying these were his exact words? eh, not really. You know, that's a a tough thing to say. You know, and I didn't really, it was tough for me to tackle in the film because, like I said, you know, explaining that would have taken like a while. So that's why I just put his famous last words and that's why I want to release a book with this research information.
2: Now you mentioned in your documentary that Panzram was rumored to have left a last will. Talk about that, if you don't mind, along with the final instructions he gives for his ashes.
1: Yeah, you know he uh, he did leave a, a last will, you know, which has never been found. You know, there there are about two or three different documents that have never been found, and and his last will is has never been found. But supposedly, you know, one of uh, these doctors had, had seen his last will. And, and one of his requests was that, you know, he wanted his, whatever was left of him, to dog meat and to serve to the dog pound in uh, uh, Minnesota. <laughs>
2: there, there seems now on the Internet to be a really morbid fascination with Pan's Ram. It's almost a cult of personality. What is your opinion on how he is viewed today?
1: You know, he is seen as this ultimate nihilist. You know, this—they see he was the most hate-filled, you know, criminal who ever lived. And I mean, I do have to say, above all of these serial killers, Panzeram is probably the one that I wouldn't mind sitting down and having a beer with, just because of the fact that he did lie. There were some things that he did lie about. Yes. But like I said, I think his assessment of, you know, humanity and, uh, especially the, um, legal, legal justice system and the incarceration, incarceration system are extremely accurate because he lived it. And, and, you know, this isn't a PhD. This is someone who actually lived it, who was in the prisons, who knew what was really going on not just from an outsider's perspective, from an insider's perspective. So, you know, he is seen, and I saw him as a a symbol of mankind's hatred and destruction, you know, and um, in the end, he did leave us with lessons. He told us how to teach our children, you know, how to, how... To hopefully not make more Carl Panzrams, and how to teach our children. He and he spells it out specifically. He says, teach them words like love and hate, and what the opposites are, and what the meanings behind these things are, and truth and lies. You know, and and, and again, you know, teach these these values to our children instead of kind of like what he grew up as, pretty much being ignored and and you know left to his own devices. So, yeah, he is, he's seen as, now as this hate-filled nihilist who basically has the ultimate pessimistic negative view on life and, and, you know, thinks that all human beings are, are basically, you know, filthy creatures that, you know, are just out for themselves and, and power, might is right. And, and, you know, I could see many people you know, having that point of view, you know, I, you know, being in film, it's, it, it's not the easiest thing to do. And I've had a lot of bad, you know, experiences and and tough times, but you know, it hasn't jaded me a hundred percent, but there is that factor there. And when you start dealing with more different types of people and personalities, you know, in a sense, you know, sometimes you may want to be like Panzer and we're like, you know what, I just don't even want to be around people. I just want to take a break. You know, it's, it's easy to see, you know, the bad things in people, but you know, there's also a lot of good out there. So, you know, it's tough. I think a lot of people see him as, you know, this, this ultimate nihilist who, you know, tells the truth about, you know, what he feels about mankind. And, you know, I do think that when children reach, you know, obviously there, his story, there are graphic parts of it, but I think when children reach a certain age, maybe after 12 or 13, I think his story should be required reading. To, to kind of tell kids, you know what, this isn't necessarily what life is or what life is about, but it could be. And there's a lot of this out there. So, you know what, read this. And, you know, this might let you know that everything in the world isn't, you know, all rosy and, and filled with love. I mean, it, it's there, but there are realities too to this. And we're seeing a lot of this now in the world with racial discrimination and, you know, these things. Many, I, I mean, a lot of these things that Panthram talked about, you know, they're, they're still happening now. You know, one of the experts I interviewed, the criminologist, uh, Dr. Gitchoff, he said the only thing that's changed in the, in the prison system over time from the beginning is the color of the paint on the walls. That's the only thing that's changed.
2: Where can listeners learn more about you and watch this film along with your others?
1: Currently, Panzeram is still streaming on Netflix. Um, you know, I'm not sure if they're going to renew it, but you can catch it on Netflix. Um, all my films now are on Amazon Primes, including Panzeram. And I just uh, had more DVDs replicated of Panzeram because there there's... A great uh on the dvd there's a great making of which i interviewed the red wing superintendent and there's the entire interview with henry luster when he was at san diego state university so i'll have more of the dvds in stock the website is Panzram.com. it's just his last name P-A-N-Z-R-A-M.com, um and my site is just my name john but you know uh and definitely look forward to the book. I'm, I'm putting the book together now, and it's going to concentrate on his time at D.C. and Leavenworth and include, like my other books that I've done on serial killers, it's going to include like 95% uh, all actual documents and mugshots from his cases.
2: Thank you, John, tremendously for your time.
1: Thank you so much, and I look forward to talking more. You know, hopefully we can make it a regular thing. I'd love to be on again.
2: This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenus, and have a safe tomorrow.